Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, today I am very excited. Uh, I am privileged to welcome to the program uh, a, a gentleman who has I, – I, Dr. Porges, are you there? I'm here, yes. Yeah, I, I want to gush about you for a second because I am a giant fan of your work and the observations that you've brought to light. Uh, I thought it was time we took your material to the public, which I know is going to be a little bit of a task because it's very physiological and very technical, but this is the future. Uh, of are, our, are we, are, we're offline now, No, right? no, we're on. We're on the we're air. We're on. We're oh, on. Okay. We are officially okay. on. I know it sounds okay. like I'm not talking a lot, but I am. Okay, then go ahead and gush. Go uh, right ahead. Yes. Uh, Dr. Borges uh, developed something called the polyvagal theory. And it is, uh, I, that may not be a term that is immediately apparent what it means to everybody, but he basically has shown uh, how a part of our central, ner- well, of our nervous system, uh, that has been ignored for a long time, or at least marginalized, may be at the core of understanding uh, how, I don't know how to describe this, how our emotional landscapes work. Uh, I, I came to your work, Dr. Porges, through Alan Shore. I'm, I'm a humble disciple of his work. And oh. uh, his his work informed everything I do. And he is, a, by, by the way, Dr. Shore will be on in a couple of episodes to talk to you about his work, uh, but he has been able to show, you know, how the emotional landscape is built, how the self is built, and how this is a, a we've missed the, the fact that this is a bodily-based experience, and that the autonomic nervous system, the sort of brakes and accelerator of our system, has been marginalized uh, in our understanding of this thing we call emotions and feelings. Is that a good way to sort of bring it to I life? Think it's, or? A, it's a good start, okay. but I was actually going, if, if you don't mind me Pl- bouncing in. And, please, uh, bring it. Okay. Um, I actually uh, realized, I finally realized that you were trained as an internist. Yes, I'm a trained as an and, internist. And, and what I would say is, to start this, I would say that what I do is really the interface between internal medicine and psychiatry. Yes. So um, you should find yourself feeling very much at home with the linkage of the autonomic nervous system to uh, behavioral mental health disorders. Well, and it, it maybe that's why you ended up in addiction medicine, too, because that's a similar crossroad. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's very much, you know, medical. There's a lot of medical stuff going on. It's, there's neurobiology that's completely out of whack. There's interpersonal. There's dynamic issues. There's psychiatric issues. But ultimately, it is about the body and the body's relation to the brain. And that is something that I think has been – and when people talk, for instance, you know, I talk, I'm getting off topic completely right away here. But whenever I hear people talking about, you know, uh, computers or artificial intelligence – I immediately think, no, wait a minute, humans have this old other thing that they're embedded in that informs so much of what they're experiencing. Maybe it's all of what they're experiencing, but it also informs what they're thinking, how they remember things, uh, and how they process information. It's why there's things like intuition and why we have insights. Those actually are bodies creating those, those sorts of moments, I suspect. Well, we are biological. I mean, that's what we are. And whatever we do, whether it's art or music or social interactions, is really based on our biology. And this tends to be, you know, marginalized, this importance. And as you've already realized that we live in a world that is very, I'll use the term, cognitive-centric or cortical-biased. Yes. It's, it's being the same thing, that this little part of the brain that deals with our awareness and our alertness and our consciousness, we believe is the major role of our brain. And it's not really uh, to help our body run. And our, the way our body is functioning also feeds back and provides portals of accessibility to different mental uh, competencies. Well, let's try to talk about the vagus nerve and what you observe. Let, let, talk, talk about the polyvagal theory. I, by the way, I gave a lecture at the USC Med- University of Southern California. Not, I know where you are. You're at Dr. Porges is a professor of psychiatry at University of North Carolina. Uh, by the way, you can find more information at Stephen Porges, P-O-R-G-E-S dot com. And the book, which will be on our website, is The Polyvagal Theory. Uh, I gave a lecture at not University of Southern Carolina, near you, mm-hmm. University of Southern California, which uh, is our USC. And uh, I tried to tiptoe into your material. It was interesting because uh, I do think, uh, I do use it so much 
in terms of helping people understand emotional regulation and uh, intersubjective experiences. And they were pretty receptive. I even wrote an exam question about it, which uh, is about you know, basically, you know, what is the polyvagal theory? Basically, it was my in, in a national in a format that we're all accustomed to. But th- talk about what you observe, how you got into this. Well, I got in, I'll talk about the history of getting into it in a moment. But first, um, the theory is extraordinarily neurophysiologically based, but it's also intuitive. So now you have this balance between really deep science and the history of neuroanatomy and neurophysiology and the study of evolution on one side, and the other side, the intuition of this is, this is how we feel, this is how we act. And when you put those layers together, suddenly you demystify a lot of the unusual experiences people have had, especially those who have been traumatized or have severe mental health issues. Um, How I got into this is really uh, backwards. I think uh, we all get into things that interest us about feelings and uh, trying to understand our, our body, but we often go into a profession. So... I started off in psychology, and I was interested in physiological markers or parallels of psychological processes with kind of a a dream that you could put electrodes on people and you could uh, understand a lot about them without talking to them. Okay, so you could understand uh, a lot about their physiological states. And as I started to do my work, and this is actually now several decades ago, I start to ask more serious questions, not uh, simply were there correlates or relationships between autonomic activity and cognitive processes or emotional states, but what were the pathways, what were the neurophysiological pathways? I was actually trying to figure out how the system worked, and I had been studying heart rate patterns, and this may sound extremely uh, uh, boring to many of the listeners. But I was interested in how the nervous system was reflecting information uh, in the patterning of a heartbeat. And this becomes real when we start to understand that our heart is really governed in part by a large nerve that comes out of the brainstem called the vagus. So the vagus functions literally as a brake. And people who are resilient and people who can engage others, have good self-control, tend to have good control, uh, vagal influences on the heart. So when they uh, uh, stand up and the heart rate accelerates, they can calm down rapidly with this vagal influence. And I got into this, uh, the whole polyvagal theory uh, started in the 1990s because I thought I had really done, made my major contributions. I had developed methodologies to measure vagal activity of the heart. And I was really having fun uh, measuring this activity in various clinical disorders from preterm babies, babies vulnerable for SIDS, to uh, hyperactive kids, to a whole variety of different populations. And I published a paper in a journal called Pediatrics, and I got a letter back from a neonatologist. And the letter um, was really quite interesting. It was a letter that said, I really enjoyed your paper, but it had the following phrase, however... And those of us who are in the academic world, <laughs> we always are very, very, uh, yeah. you know, this is where the however gets you. Yeah, it's going to be a punch that follows. Right. So the point was, however, when I was in medical school, I learned that the vagus could kill you. And I was, uh, in my paper, trying to talk about the vagus as protective of preterm and full-term babies, and this was a good indicator of the developmental trajectory. And so I realized, uh, well, his final statement was, perhaps too much of a good thing is bad. And whenever someone says that, that simplistic explanation really deserves uh, uh, to be Unpacking, unpacking. Yeah, attack, yeah. Unpack it, look at it, and see what it really means, because obviously you're looking at two different worlds. And in medical school, he's right. What people are taught is that the bradycardias or the apneas of preterm babies, they're vaguely mediated, and they can kill you. Babies, like, not, not adults so much, but babies. Not, well, it potentially can happen in adults also, but this literally got sponged out of a lot of the literature. So just like a turtle or a reptile immobilizes under threat and their heart rates get, go very, very slow and they stop breathing because they have to go into water and reduce metabolic activity, preterm babies do this in, except it's almost it's potentially lethal. They go into bradycardia as the heart rates get very slow and they and, stop breathing. And, and let, me, let me hook this up right away and early in this story mm-hmm. to, so people can relate to it. It's also oftentimes what we do in extreme circumstances of terror. 
we go yeah. f- we go from hyper stimulation and fight or flight to hyper inhibition where yeah. the body is going into a metabolically conservative state to anticipate like if you're standing in front of a lion if that lion hits you you're ready for it you can no longer right. run away but you're prepared and it also at the same time this is the connection that people will make is at the same time as that vagus nerve is putting out a bunch of stuff into the body the brain is getting flooded with cortisol and uh, opioid blocking types of uh, chemicals. Right. So, so actually, it's raising pain thresholds, and people are dissociating and going someplace else. Oh. And what you'll find as the story unfolds is that this fits the description, as you're saying, of many people who have had been abused, been uh, suffered from PTSD. And there was no explanation about their symptoms because people thought it was all, quote, a stress response. And stress, people talk about as increased sympathetic activity and not vagal. And, but, and let, let me, to, yeah. again, I'm going to kind of, I, I, I don't want to lose people, so I'm going to jump in with stuff that sort of hooks it, hooks it back to, you know, everyday experience. You know, I think we all know, let's say when you fall in love, you feel a warm feeling in your chest or people point to their chest. The heart mm-hmm. is the source of all kinds of feelings bodily-based feelings. We all know what we're talking about when we talk about that. Yet, when you talk about the brain, how does the brain get you to feel things in your heart? Well, if I remember part of your polyvagal theory is that something like 80% of the vagus is uh, going the other direction, right? Right. right. So it's, it's actually a feeling instrument as well. It's a feeling instrument, but it may, be, may not have the specificity. So when we get these feelings, we may have difficulty labeling it. It's a feeling so in our chest. Yeah. yeah. So we have, you know, some, we know we have a change, and we may not have a vocabulary or haven't developed a vocabulary to describe those feelings. Uh, the, the, you're right on target in the sense that this is a very primitive system. It's a defensive system. But this was not the vagal system that I was studying. Nor I. I. Studying, Nor yeah, I. It was, yeah, it was a protective vagal system. Well, uh, the va- here's what it was. It, you were studying the, the autonomic nervous system. Here's what happened in medical school. You yeah. studied the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system, and you study the pharmacology of blocking the various ro- you know various chemicals that come out of that system or the synaptic you know uh, pathways right. in that system. And you go, oh, this one speeds things up. You block it. Things slow down. Mm-hmm. This one slows things down. You block it. Things speed up. That's about that was the simplistic right. way right. we were. That that's the extent. Trust me, the extent of the autonomic nervous system training we had. Well, it becomes interesting when you look at the history. I want to just put one more point in, and that the type of vagal activity that this gentleman was describing was, in a sense, a potentially lethal response, but what I was studying was a protective response. So now we're back to the, the neonatologist or pediatrician, whatever, right. who sent you the right, letter. But that yeah. created what I call the vagal paradox, and I had to figure this one out. And the answer really came out of studying the evolution of the autonomic nervous system in, in uh, invertebrates. And what happened is that literally we, have, we don't have a simple paired antagonistic system just like you described. We have a sympathetic and a parasympathetic. We do have that, but they're not always at battle. We really have hierarchical systems that inhibit uh, other systems. So in a sense, we have a very ancient vagal shutdown response we have a sympathetic mobilization fight-flight, which inhibits the shutdown. And then we have this new mammalian vagus, which is linked to this, the muscles of the face and head. So when people are smiling, when there's good prosody in voice, and when their upper part of the face is alive, that's inhibitory of the sympathetics. So you can see you know, how the nervous system of social behavior and social interaction is the same as the nervous system that supports health. Make that connection for people again because you packed a lot into that. So, so the, 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 the primitive, primitive system, which yeah. is an unmyelinated system? It's an unmyelinated okay. system, but don't think of it merely as a system that creates uh, – uh, uh, it's, it's a lethal system. No, I, no, no, no. But it's the, it, it's the it system is. that we share with possums and reptiles. Oh, we, yeah. we share with reptiles. Yeah. We share with bony fish. Right. And, and uh, so – and it's yeah. and it's it's the it's the escape when there is no other escape. It's the it's, it's the it's the it's very simple. It reduces metabolic demands right. on our body. And, and, and but when, yeah. but when it does so, it also activates dissociation, which is a very yeah. problematic psychological neurobiological thing. We can talk right. about that later. But that but that's the thing. That's the system of last resort. That's when it's there's no system. escape. Right. And 
those of us, uh, I should say many people, are fortunate that the system is triggered so they don't suffer pain in either dying or being abused because they just disappear. The problem is when this becomes the predominant means of reacting to stress or unpleasant feelings, now you have a big problem. Absolutely. We evolve not to use this system for defense. We evolve to use the system uh, to support our homeostatic, our health and growth. And so the, the, this old unmyelinated vagus was there, and it's very important for our health, for our digestion. But when the system is being used as a defense system, we're in really deep trouble. And that's largely goes, in addition to being able to do shutdown, it goes also below the diaphragm in terms of regulating. Below the diaphragm. Yeah. And, of course, when you mention this and start asking what are the internal medicine uh, symptoms of people who have problems, it's always going to be gut problems. Yeah, they have they have irritable bowel, they have yeah. abdominal pain, they have all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah, and there's one other thing that's linked to this as well. The afferent branch of that vagus coming from the, the subdiaphragmatic area actually helps regulate nociceptive pain. So okay, so I'm, I'm going to yeah. translate that for you. So <laughs> so the, the, ner- the information coming back from the gut through this old vagus yeah. changes pain perception. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... So people who have problems with gut, who often have problems even with blood pressure regulation, also often have fibromyalgia. In which, uh, and, of course, people that are traumatized often have all kinds of yeah. pain syndromes. Yeah. Then, then there's the flight-or-fight response, which is the next layer, which is the predominantly sympathetic system, yes? Right. And we have to think of everything not as good or bad, but as being adaptive. And once we take that moral veneer off, then we can be helpful. So... A lot of people are basically highly mobilized. They're literally in panic a good portion of the time. Many of those people have histories of being immobilized. Right. And in, in, in what, what, what Dr. Porges is talking about, sexual abuse, physical abuse, in particular, strangely enough, interpersonal terror, interpersonal stuff, not just seeing a – it can happen seeing an explosion or a war or something, but it's particularly something of interpersonal terror, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but it's also even it interacts even with basically clinical medicine, trauma by diagnosis. Oh, oh, I know. Listen, I I was shocked one day when I was in a you know California. We have to go to these pain conferences to, to keep up our license, and I went to one, and the director of the pain medicine program gets up and says, uh, "You know, funny thing about these pain patients, somewhere ninety six percent of them are sexually or physically abused." Anyway, let's go on to the talk to you how we're going to prescribe <laughs> how we're going to prescribe those opiates for those patients. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so what I've Really, as, as the story starts coming out in terms of this hierarchical system, the symptoms that are clustered around uh, different levels of the polyvagal system, meaning this shutdown, old, unmyelinated, primitive vagus, versus a sympathetic nervous system that turns off the subdiaphragmatic vagus, meaning you get constipated, you're tightly wrapped, you're anxious person who's constipated, and but the face is now flat, but versus the person who's face is animated and who has lots of vagal activity to the heart, they're basically a much more integrated individual. Okay, so now we're move, moved up to the mammalian, what you call the mammalianated, yeah. mammalian or myelinated system, which is something that evolves in relation to the branchial pouches, which is where our face and our and our and all of our, how do you help people understand this? All, all, everything well, you see above the neck sort of evolves in the same area. <laughs> all, all, all the... Uh, type of muscles that are called striated muscles of the face and head, come, uh, the control comes from the same area that regulates this newer vagus. Okay, so the stuff, the, the facial nerve material, which regulates yeah. the face, is, is, is related to the source of this new vagus. Yeah. Now, what this means is we wear our heart on our face. And, this, and that source is something called the nucleus ambiguous, if I remember right. right. Yeah. And, of course, how do we wear our feelings and our heart on our face we, uh, in terms of uh, how our facial muscles work, but also in terms of the prosodic or the intonation of our voice? And you said so, something very interesting, too. There's even a relationship between the muscles that adjust the ossicles in our ear and yeah. the vagus. But, but you've done your homework. I, yes. Oh, I love your material. Are you sure uh, I read your stuff like scripture? I'm telling you. Wow. Well, I, I, I'm more than flattered. Uh, but we'll discuss that offline. <laughs> but basically, uh, the middle ear, the, one of the defining features of mammals that most people don't realize is detached middle ear bones. 
and that enabled mammals through the through uh, during uh, the transition from reptiles to mammals enabled the mammal to survive by literally having a a, a niche to communicate vocally that the reptiles couldn't hear because their middle ear bones didn't detach. And and then we could literally adjust our our yeah. t- attunement to those prosodic changes. Through- only, only if we're in safe environments. Because if we're not in safe environments, we want to hear those big reptiles. Now, you mentioned that the animated face is an important piece of the vagal function. Uh, are you you must be familiar with Peter Fonagy and his his stuff? Uh, a little bit. Well, little. he he puts a lot on. Uh, the back and forth facial expression mm. and, and what that is communicating to a child, and and I think I I overlaid your theory on his and said, and then thereby activating this vagal function. Yeah, if it's reciprocal and it becomes a neural exercise, and this is really the word I like using now, that talk therapy or social interactions or just being with another human being, talking, listening, engaging, smiling. These are neural exercises of this face-heart connection. Isn't that interesting, face-heart connection? That's a fascinating way to say it. Because, again, when you say face-heart, immediately everyone intuitively knows when you bring your heart into an experience that it's, some again, bodily-based, emotional, feeling-based right. experience. And what he says is he, he says that he, he looks at mothers and infants and he says, you know, the infant is awash in feeling states. They can't – doesn't have language yet necessarily. He can't identify the feelings, can't regulate the feelings. And the first thing the child is is an object of scrutiny by the mom. And the mom tries to attune to the child's um, biological state and then read it. Like what's the content of the child's mind? And then he says when, when as soon as she knows, it's something that was, uh, it was Winnicott or somebody said, which is uh, that mom looks like what she sees. In other words, what she perceives to be going on in the child's mind, it immediately becomes reflected on her face. Not that she is uh, reflecting to the child her constitutional state. The mom doesn't catch the feelings of the child, but she's reflecting an appreciation of the child's primary emotional state. And then then that exchange becomes a means for developing emotional regulation. I I totally agree, but there are a couple important points here. Um, If you recall back about uh, 20 or 30 years ago, well, you're not that old, but earlier in your medical career. That was 30 years ago. <laughs> I'm that old. There were um, uh, preterm babies were abandoned. In, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And the, re- the reason for that was the parents felt that the child didn't love them. Oh, wow. Or, or one, of the, one, of the, one of the aspects. And when I asked my medical students and graduate students, what do parents of autistic children, parents of severely hyperactive kids, and parents of preterm children often say? They say, I love my child, but my child doesn't love me. And this goes back to this paradigm you're describing. Because in all those uh, populations, those clinical populations, the face is not working. Is it also, though, that some, it, which is first, the chicken or the egg, that they don't no. appreciate what the content of others' minds and don't reflect it, or they can't attach that vagal mechanism? They, it's, it's, the, it's the attachment because the children have feelings. Yeah. And the system is just poorly organized. Mm. And the cues that the parent is picking up may not be truly representative, representative of the child's state. Have we, have we now sort of, we've sort of walked through the polyvagal theory, right? Pretty much? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How does the polyvagal theory relate to attachment? Can you make that understandable to people? I, I, okay. So I, I, what I like to say is you don't just have attachment. You have a preamble to being attached. And whether we're talking about with infants or we're talking about uh, peer-peer relationships, you have to be providing signals to the other uh, in a reciprocal way that signals safety. Okay. And then you get proximity. Okay. See, you see get I, prox- you're, you're yeah. talking. It's, it's funny. You know, we're talking about some. Again, I'm trying to make it relatable for people. We're talking about very specific biological, organismic sorts of experiences, but they these are the substrate. For intimacy, this is how we we build closeness with other humans. And by the way, in closeness, we build the capacity for emotional regulation. We find meaning. We find love. We find self. And all of this stuff you're talking about is the requisite for those nice things to happen. Would you agree? 
I totally agree, but I also say it supports general health because we have an overlapping circuit with the social behavior we're describing with the neural mechanisms that promote health. Here's what I want to do. I want to take a quick break, uh, and uh, we'll be right back with more of Dr. Stephen A. Stephen W. Porges, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but you can call me Steve. Is there a Stephen A. Porges, too? Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Because I saw saw the W on everything I thought, and then the A sounds funny. Uh, Dr. Porges, we sort of walked through the polyvagal theory. You have a new book, by the way, coming out called Clinical Applications of Polyvagal Theory. When is that coming out? I can't wait to see that. Well, it's actually, you should read the, the second part of the title, which is the transformative power of feeling safe. Um, and you've meant, you just yet. mentioned feeling safe is what, what you think this builds. Yes. Yeah. Everything about in my work now is about the triggers to our nervous system that enable us to feel safe. And that when we feel safe, what we, what we get from that in terms of the accessibility of different uh, cognitive functions, different emotional functions, and health. And everything, uh, so not being scared is not the same thing as feeling safe. Right. And, and in part, the medical community has kind of missed this because they're very driven by pharmaceutical treatments. And drugs can, in a sense, dampen certain systems, but they don't necessarily potentiate the systems that we need to be more engaging. I'll tell you, in, inter- in uh, interpersonal therapies, when people are dealing, uh, particularly emotionally-based interpersonal therapies, you know, uh, uh, marriage and family therapy, that kind of thing, the number one thing I always hear people saying is, I don't feel safe. I don't feel-. They say it many different ways, but what they're really saying is, I don't feel safe in this relationship. You don't make me feel safe. Yeah, and I think this is the basis uh, for all, all mammalian relationships. Uh, mammals have to sleep. They have to be in, in, in environments. They have to eat a lot. They have to defecate. They have to do a lot of behaviors that require immobilization and loss of hypervigilance. So they have to feel safe. And if you think of that in terms of the clinical disorders that people have in terms of ingestive and digestive processes, it's merely representing that their nervous system isn't safe. And you don't make a person safe by telling them to be safe. Their body is doing the decoding. Right. And now you wanted to mention something about language versus speech. Yeah. So, again, we live in this very strange time where everything is syntactically driven, word-driven. So people use Twitter, they use email, and they don't convey the prosodic, the intonation of voice. But we evolved, mammals evolved, not with language, but with vocalizations. And the vocalizations were to convey the physiological state of the other so that we knew we were safe to come together. So all mammals will vocalize, and the vocalizations are really conveying their physiological state. And what I'm going to, since you, you're, you were trained, I, this, I'm going to tease you, but uh, you were trained in neuroanatomy for that course you took. Remember that oh, one? Oh, I remember that one. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. So there's a, there's a nerve called the recurrent laryngeal nerve. It's actually a branch of the vagus. Yes, it's the one we worry about when we're doing thyroidectomies. Yeah, yeah. Well, it also it controls a degree of prosody, and so it parallels the vagal influence to the heart is coming through in prosodic features. Hmm. So not only do we wear our heart on our face, we're literally, literally projected in the intonation of our voice. So, and let's think of another way of communicating that. Is it so our feelings get communicated through our voice? Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, Darwin acknowledged this in his book on emotions in, in men and, and animals. In a sense, high pitch, narrow. Uh, okay, so if you talk to someone and their voice is a high pitch and it doesn't really have, uh, it's, a, it's like a shrill voice. What do you know about that person? They're anxious or they're upset. Right. Yeah. And what about their muscle tone when you look at high, them? High tone, I think. Right. Yeah. And what if they're uh, using a very low voice and they're barking and yelling? It's kind of like a rage response. Yes. Right? And rage can but, be, rage can be go both ways. Yeah. Well, rage can actually go low. Yeah. Too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so what social communication is in between those boundaries. And our nervous pick, nervous system picks up that information. Singing must be in the on the spectrum too. It'd be interesting oh. to check the vagal tone of of uh, comfortable singers. It's probably. Oh, I I looked at your webpage, so I <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And you know uh, what do mothers do to their babies uh, to make them feel calm before they understand language? Even they, they sing, sing to, to them, them. Yeah, they sing to them, and and they don't sing in complex songs. It's very simple uh, lullabies. 
within a certain frequency band. And if we think about those frequencies, this is exactly what the classical composers use to introduce their melodies. Oh, oh interesting. So, so, so as, I, as I add up the score here, it's that yeah. we, we are very focused on communicating with language yeah. Yet, yet we've lost track of the rich communication through our facial expression and our vocal intonation. And where are we going in our society? More towards the, you know, that's why you can't have a real relationship uh, in an internet, you know, in a chat okay. room. Okay, and where are we going with our educational system? Oh, we're, listen, I get that same lecture I gave to the medical school the yeah. other day. Yeah. Uh, I they he I, I would know they put them all in a smaller classroom because the mayor had the bigger classroom and he said no yeah, they'll they'll fit in there there's only about eighty of them I said well, isn't the class one hundred ninety kids yeah 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 the other one hundred ten are watching it on a podcast mm-hmm. yeah it's just amazing because we're so uh, cognitive centric but if we had more social interactions more play more music more all uh, you know drama all these things that require reciprocal interactions. We'd be building through neural exercises, and that's what those interactions are, more resilient kids who would then have greater access to their cognitive structures. This is a big deal, and it's been completely ignored. I've I've been talking about this. I try to talk about this a lot when I'm out in the world, and and it just doesn't – you know, because people are so traumatized, I think they're fearful of uh, even hearing this message. Well, another way of saying is we're being uh, the people who uh, have difficulty in face-to-face social interaction are creating the agenda for other people's social interaction. They are, but in the meantime, we're we're use, losing the richness and meaning that humans have have relied upon throughout human history. I mean, read any great novel or drama or whatever it is, it, or listen to a great symphony, whatever it is, it's all there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, anyway. I get a little disheartened by by that. Um, any um, oh shoot, I wanted to ask you something else about the uh, the vocal part. Ah, I lost it. Middle ears. Well, are people are people responding to your theories? Are are physicians picking it up and going with it? Um, and it's really it's a, okay. It's been an interesting journey because I come out of very traditional academics, and I'm one of the few people who is still literally a, a laboratory scientist doing research who's talking to all these uh, other groups, you know, clinical groups all around the world. And it's been very interesting to watch this at one side and then to watch the medical community on the other. So within the past month, I talked at UC San Diego uh, Neuroscience in their medical school, and then I talked at Dartmouth. Uh, but in general, I talk much more to, like, uh, family. Uh, so I talked to the Erickson Couples, uh, Erickson Foundation Couples Group in in uh, Manhattan Beach a couple weeks ago. So those, the clinicians are very excited. Uh, the academic physicians are becoming excited because there's strong science behind it. Uh, the problem w- within psychiatry, from my perspective, is psychiatry is so drug oriented in terms of treatment that they lost the interaction with the with the patient. Completely. Oh, it's, it's not valued at all. But the whole medical system has is, is lost that. Uh, thankfully, there are ancillary disciplines showing up that are pick, picking this piece up, though, I think. Well, and the fact is that people are seeking those because they like the social interaction. So the metaphor that I kind of use is that there are you know, master clinicians regardless of their training. Right. But the master clinicians understand all these principles intuitively. Right. And the rest of us are having it sort of expunged from our practice. <laughs> yes. It's true. And, it's, and it really – my thing is that this is so uh, – I know what I'm going to ask you. I remember now. Does your theory in any way inform – I've always wondered why humans like watching other sick humans act out. <laughs> why we – you know, if you look at any – if you look at any great tragedy or great opera or now reality TV shows, you're really looking at sick people acting sick. Does this theory in any way help us understand why people do that, why we look toward that? Well, I would think in terms of opera, you know, I would go with the you're being led by the music. And the music is, but it's, is, but it's dramatic music about horrible things, tragedies, yeah, and people misbehaving but, and drawing death and violence. But, but it's pulling you in. Um, with the prosodic uh, orchestra. Oh, I get that. I get that. I yeah. just wonder why uh, why it couldn't understand. be about people behaving nicely and being boring. We have uh, what is it that um, makes it interesting to us? And does and does this theory oh, somehow inform that? 
Um, I, I get, you know, this is a guess. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. It's good. <laughs> I won't tell okay. your academic colleagues you've been guessing. You know, this is a guess, but this is actually uh, what I, this guess I think will inform us over time about the effects of trauma. I think certain things occur under a one-trial learning, a set of one-trial learning rules, and that people have forgotten about single-trial learning. That was for, like, taste aversion, people who used to get chemotherapy if they ate something, they could never eat that again. Yes. Okay? Yes. So single-trial exposure, it's not a repeated association. It's something different. And trauma carries a lot of those things. And... But neurophysiologically, all that single trial learning from that old literature is autonomic. Yes. Okay, so what we're doing with listening to the sad music is we're triggering an autonomic system. Yes. And hopefully triggering empathy. But I think you were asking something different than empathy. You were actually asking, like with reality TV shows, tend not to elicit empathy. Right. Why was well, Schadenfreude a little bit? But what, why? Yeah. Why? Why? See, I, I understand it intuitively that it's more exciting, more arousing, and as such sort of gets our attentional mechanisms going. But why sick people? <laughs> well, I think there are two different things going on. The music is not arousing in the sense that you're talking about. It's pulling people in with pathos. That, that makes listen, The music part makes perfect sense to me. That, Let's that's move easy. that to the side yeah. and talk about reality TV. Okay. And I think that's more like roller coaster riding. Okay. I think I think yeah. it's coming close to someone's tragedy and then being able to turn it off. It's it's like spinning in the chair. It's just self stimulating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a controlled exposure. Yeah. Because you can always walk away. Yeah. Uh, but the music, even in the in the opera, you can't walk away. You're not allowed to. There's social constraints once you sit down in that music hall. Well, not only the social there's there's musical constraints. You you don't yeah. you know you don't get let go until the you're back at tonic in a very some some sort of dramatic way. The, right, the tonic right. key. Yeah. Well, Dr. Porges, I want to thank you so much for joining me. It's really been a privilege and, and a pleasure, and uh, you're everything I expect you to be, and uh, helping me sort of expose the average person to some of these thinking. I, I think we laid it out in a way that um, people can access it, and and I, I hope they can contextualize it because you know as a as clinicians and as a physician, the, the context of this for me was uh, awakening. It was just immediately obvious how it all fit in with things I was seeing and experience, you know, particularly with addicted and traumatized populations. And and then my, it informed how I approached patients with the, the, the prosodic voice and the facial expressions. The, the other piece that the face does that you may appreciate as a psychologist is it sets a boundary. Yeah. It, and it, and it sig- it's a signal without a contagion. Uh, and it's it's very it's built into us, and a lot of people don't don't appreciate that that they they have these nonverbal ways of communicating that are received on a different level and and are done in such a way that there's this boundary between the self and the other. Uh, the website is stephenporges.com. The Stephen is with a ph. It's p o r g e s. The book is the Polyvagal Theory. I didn't read you the uh, the, the second subtitle because I was afraid we were going to scare people off. <laughs> but it's time. Neurophysiological time. Foundations of Emotions, Attachment, Communication, and Self-Regulation. And the new book we'll be looking forward to is Clinical Applications of the Polyvagal Theory. I will get – please, you guys, got to put the Polyvagal Theory up on our website, it's which we will. Dr. Good. And uh, it's if I, if I read it right, it's really a, a series of essays, is it not? It's, it's pa- papers you've compiled and sort of integrated, yes? Right, the yeah. first book. But the second yeah. book is – going to be is being written for normal people it's it's going to be more conversational and more translational beautiful i can't would you mind coming back again when that comes out we'll we'll pump it i i certainly would love to thank you i appreciate you being here thank you dr porges we are going to go to break and then we'll be back with your phone calls right after this hi i'm larry miller but in a way aren't we all and this week on this week with larry miller we talk about rosebud citizen kane and being in a movie in a veterinary clinic where you just ate your dinner off the same table that was a dog's butt. I've done all of those. We'll see you here. Welcome back to the Doctor Who Podcast. A big thank you to Dr. Stephen Porges, again, one of my heroes. And if you really... Maybe listen to that a couple times, take in exactly what he's talking about. That That is groundbreaking material and really the foundation of how our bodily-based experiences are translated into emotional and feeling experiences. 
Lots of research on that coming out all the time. I want to go on out to the phones. And by the way, before I do, reminder, podcast, support the podcast. Click through at Amazon.com. Check out the iTunes, Groovy groovy Tunes on the website. The Swinging Sounds. Swinging Sounds, sounds sorry. And, but they are uh, Groovy Tunes. And so do support right. the people that support the pirate ship that allow us to keep doing what we're doing here by going ahead and actually using the services that we advertise on the show. This now, we're going out to calls, is for is uh, Christine. Christine. Hi. Hey, what's going on there? Um, well, I'm calling because I have actually a lot of things, but um, and the first thing I was calling about was depression because I've had trouble with it often on my whole life, well, since I was like 15, mm-hmm. and I'm 46, and I was on the drugs for a long time, like from my early 30s until not long ago, like M- December. Medication or drugs? Medication. medication. You're not a drug user. You're just taking medication. No, I'm not a drug user. No, I don't even drink. I'm really boring. Okay. But, um, yeah, um, I went off antidepressants in December, and my psychiatrist wasn't really chill, but I wasn't really that chilled with her anyway. So I um, just decided that I could try to handle it on my own because I really wanted to, and I have two little kids adopted from foster care. That's why I want to talk about neglect. But, wow. Um, Oof. And um, and I have a loving husband who just lost his job again. He's been out of work for six years, and the stress has been really kind of unreal. But um, but I was doing really well, or pretty well. I can say I mean I'm not 100, percent but I think I'm doing pretty well. And then he lost his job about a month ago, and I've really been struggling. But I really want to try and stay off the drugs, and I've been trying really hard to. I've done a lot of research about foods and trying to eat really healthy, try to get, you know, just fruits and vegetables and kind of a paleo style of eating. And I've been finding that I felt a lot better once I, when I really do it, it's hard to stick to it. Um, but that seemed to help a lot, getting a little more exercise helps. And um, I just wanted to ask about what you think about being off the antidepressants long term when the doctors are like, oh, you're a lifer, you're going to be on them for the rest of your life. And I thought, well, I don't necessarily buy that argument and I also I don't know I a little maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist but when I hear you're going to go on these drugs and you're going to be on them for the rest of your life and I I worry about the way that our our country runs with uh, the pharmaceutical industry and part of it's because I work near and around it a little bit and I just see the way Works. All right, so listen. So here's here's, but the problem is that we you're also implicating people in helping professions who are deeply invested in people getting better, and uh, the, and in most cases, what we try to do is get people off medicines for sure. Problem is about fifty okay. percent of people that get off medicines end up back on them again, and that's just simply a statistical fact. The okay. best and in every study that's ever been done, the best outcomes are talk therapy and medication. So the idea is medicines carefully applied and used as short a term as possible, and then long-term psychotherapeutic interventions are really the key thing that, fortunately, nobody can afford and no one seems to do these days. But the right. talk therapy component is the critical piece that is missing. It's complicated. It's not as simple as just treating a mood disorder. It's, it's you know, the... The biology of mood disorder is one thing, but the context of that mood disorder, whether it's character functioning or trauma or per, you said you live in a stressful lifetime, all that stuff contributes. Yes, for sure. Losing some weight, exercising more, listening to music absolutely measures up well against medication in terms of reducing the risk of depression. So you're doing all the right stuff there, but uh, you also have to do the talk therapy. It's unrealistic to think that it's just okay. just going to get better because you're listening to classical music. Okay, and that's all right. And we actually, we, my husband and I were seeing a therapist together and no, separately. That's different, right? So, that's great. So separately and together, that's all ideal. But the the alone part, the Christine therapist, is the one that's going to be very important to reduce the risk of depression. Really, the other thing is, oh crap, was the other thing. You, oh, the the other question is, is what's your diagnosis? I mean, if you have dysthymia or you have bipolar disorder. Those are highly biological problems that not likely you're going to stay off medication. That's just what dy- was the first one? Dysthymia. I don't know that, but okay. Dysthymia is like somebody who's just always depressed, and it's just it's a it's a specific diagnosis. It's a hard one to make, frankly. And I'd be I'd be you know want to be sure you make the right diagnosis on that. But you don't sound yeah. depressed right now, so I would sort of put dysthymia. Dysthymia means you're really kind of always depressed. 
Um, Honestly, I think right now for me it's a little bit situational. And um, I've been in the past diagnosed chronic depression, and in my 20s I was actually hospitalized for it. Yeah. But, yeah, I've been doing okay. I mean, I kind of am a... I'm a lot like my grandmother. I think she would put on a face, you know, when somebody comes in, you can really put it up and you look fine. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're alone and it's bad. Did you but, have um, Did you have trauma growing up? Did I? Yeah. Or do I? Did you uh, growing up? What was that? <laughs> I, no, I can't. Well, a little. I mean, it's not extreme, nothing extreme. Um, a little bit of alcoholism in my family and maybe some mild abuse, but nothing to like... It, I mean, I know a lot of people with a lot of worse stories being in foster care. And, um, you know, we Listen, adopted a little girl because you're accustomed to hearing the most profound traumas doesn't mean you didn't have trauma. Okay. That's like saying, yeah. hey, I was in a car accident the other day. I broke my femur. I got some internal <laughs> bleeding and I got a little concussion. But, man, a lot of people die in car accidents. What, what am I worrying about? It's like, yeah, you've got some stuff we got to handle, too. <laughs> Sorry. That's a good point. It, you know, it's true. I mean, nobody was murdered in front of me. But, um, and yeah, I mean, there was some. I mean, it's, you know, and I've, I've had a lot of therapy, but I, I was out of it for quite a long time. And we just actually about a month before he lost his job, we were joined it in again because we were arguing. And good. I said, you know, we need to get into therapy. So. All right, here's the most important thing, Christine. The, the, let me just let's just sort of wrap it up with this. The mo- you, you sound very enlightened. You sound like you're really taking good care of yourself. You're you're willing to do the right works and stuff. The, the key is is follow up. Make sure somebody's monitoring you to make because you you don't can't monitor yourself. You can't be objective about your own condition. Just make sure somebody's monitoring you and uh, and that if you do need something more, that you're at least somebody's watching you. That's all. I, mean, I think it's okay. great you're off medication. That's always the goal. Off me- medicines are bad. That's where we start from. Now, if the depression is worse and that the medicine risk of the medicine is worth it, well, okay, so you you and a physician make that decision. Okay? Okay. Yeah, that is totally fair. Now, right. can I ask you a neglect question? Yep. Thank you. Um, okay, so we adopted my older daughter. She's 10 now, going on 11, uh, when she was four. And her little sister we got. And we actually got her little sister first. And they actually have six brothers, but um, they're all adopted by different families. And... Um, so I just I'm curious about this neglect. Like, how? What do you know about it? Because I've heard heard so many different things, and honestly, the biggest problem she has, and she has an amazing therapist that we got two weeks after she moved in with us, and he's been with us ever since. Um, she gets into these really I hate myself moods. Like she doesn't. She's I think she's super smart. How old is she? She's ten, going on eleven. Yeah, she's, so, we kept her. In, I mean, yes, that, that's that's neglect. I mean, that's that that's that problem. And neglect is considered actually the most severe form of, of abuse. Uh, I agree. Yeah, and so you know, there's a deep <laughs> core of shame and feeling flawed, and unless you can kind of get at them, or, or usually cause you need professional help to to get assistance with that. Yeah, they, this can go in a bad direction, and if the neglect is profound at certain developmental windows they lose the capacity to understand feelings or empathize with other people at all those can those kids can have severe deficits right right which is why we pay for private school good it's all good we we do everything we can for her it's good and she's come a huge amount you know i mean and i don't think enough people know um about how bad neglect is i mean you always think oh sexual abuse oh yeah you know physical abuse is the worst thing but honestly the worst thing you can do to your kids is ignore them i think christine you're absolutely right And, and not just ignore but really be disconnected emotionally and that kind of Empty space is a, is a bad place. There's a lot of you know, just look at the literature on Romanian orphans to understand how bad it can get. Thanks, Christine. I got to move on. Good luck with all that. I got to go out to Callie. Is that your name? Yes, that's my name. What's going on? Uh, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, I wanted to know. My main question is: Can somebody's biology make it so that marijuana causes mental health problems? Well, it, it's not their biology. It's well documented. It's I mean, it's not very common, but cannabis is well mm. known to cause several different mental health issues. Panic, panic attacks can get precipitated. And again, oh. the theory is that that person already was prone to panic. Well, Certain anxiety disorders, even uh, psychotic episodes can happen. Uh, mm. Seizures, there's all kinds of, I mean, it's a drug. So drug, you know, drugs affect your brain. Okay, all works, right. So. Well, the reason I asked you that is because, as a matter of fact, I did have a panic attack a while ago. And I used to be um, not a heavy smoker, but 
a daily smoker for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in college, so it was finals a couple weeks ago, and I had this. I'm not sure how you would classify this episode, but I just went ahead and thought, you know, it has a lot of features of a panic attack. But not only was it finals, but um, I have kind of a strange family situation, and like both my parents will call me to complain about it, mm-hmm. and it sort of. I had another sort of incidence of this, like, last October. So I was wondering, is it more related to an external problem, or is it this, you know? It, it all kind of goes together, right? How long would you stop smoking pot? How long? About three weeks. Yeah, well, it's the withdrawal. Withdrawal from pot can go on for six weeks. So so it's you're in the withdrawal window, and you, you're going to be not sleeping right. You're going to feel irritable, and you know, you're going to be a little bit kind of edgy. All that is Well, it's funny you say that. I actually don't feel edgy at all. Like, it wasn't, like, as soon as I made the decision, like, Okay, no more. You know, there's other health problems. It was just like gone. No, but I don't mean you're edgy like you're craving the drug. I mean it. It, it affects sleep. It affects thinking. It aff- and it causes panic and anxiety very commonly those few weeks after you stop. That's so. Well, so you're in the withdrawal I, period. I guess I should give you a little bit more information too. Um, when I had these, it wasn't when I was withdrawing from it. It was like briefly before, and then that kind of triggered my decision. Like I better oh, I stop see. everything I'm doing. Okay, all right. So so it's uh, it it can go either way. It can be when you're using or when you're coming off. Okay. Uh, uh, but it sounds like you've got a lot of stuff you want to deal with, and so why not get <laughs> some therapy, right? I mean, you got the, the family stuff. I mean, it's all going together. It's all yeah. You know, it you're, certainly is. Not everyone gets panic, so you got to have some genetic element for that. The cannabis is contributing to some degree, one way or another, and then the circumstance are you know big deal here. So therapy, yeah, therapy, yeah. all right? College is a great time to start therapy. There's Age, it is. I there's, agree. <laughs> there's age-specific services that are designed specifically for you and your age group, and it's free. It's never a better yeah. time. What's what school you at? What school? I'm at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. DCU. VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University. Oh, fantastic! Well, it, mm-hmm. take advantage of the health services there. Okay. Yes, I will. Thank right. you so okay. much. All right. Thank you for your calls. I want to thank also Dr. Stephen Porges, who joined me earlier. StephenPorges.com is the website. Uh, it's, again, his book is The Polyvagal Theory. Here's a, here's a mouthful. Neurophysiological Foundations of Emotion, Attachment, Communication, and Self-Regulation. And it is worth the read if you're interested. you got to be kind of interested in this field. It's pretty, pretty dense stuff. He's coming up in a new book we're looking for called Clinical Applications of the Polyvagal Theory. Remember to support the show and our products here. So Mr. Corolla pats me, continues to look me in the eye once in a while. See you guys soon. This is Corolla Digital.